Let's talk about sensual idolatry. Evil is going to come and try to break into your life, for its desire is for you because its desire has always been for you. It comes, though, not always through grand fanfare with clear declarations of its presence, but instead it often comes in small, subtle ways that it may creep into your house and that it might infect and pervert all that is good, true, and natural. You see, the devil and his demons, they're not happy to remain in hell, and they want to be with you in your household, corrupting all that is there. They want you to be contorted and twisted by the wiles of sin. And even the house of God is desired by their licentious appetite. And we may even find ourselves twisting the house of God ourselves according to our carnal desires if we are not careful. So thank you for joining me. I'm Pastor J. Dylan Proctor, and let's open up with prayer before we begin our interesting study of the book of Jude. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I ask that you be with each and every one of us, wherever we may be, Lord. Whenever we hear this message, Lord, I pray our hearts and minds will be open to hear from the wisdom of your scripture, that we may look up towards the heavens, aspiring towards all that is good and true and in line with your providential design. Lord, we thank you for the great blessings you've given us and even the common salvation which we can all come together around. Lord, let us aspire towards your kingdom in all that is true. We ask this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. So we're going to begin a study of the book of Jude. And the book of Jude is a very fascinating letter. It's very short. You just have this one little snippet there towards the ends of the New Testament. And we're going to be talking about this and kind of dissecting some of the great theology, which was revealed by one of the 12 apostles of Christ. Jude thought it was so important to talk about some of these things that he wrote a letter. And the history of the church has looked at this letter and seen that it's so important that it is something which is transcendental and important to revealing all things necessary in the course of salvation. So, as we get into today's lesson on sensual idolatry, we are hearing something which is included in Scripture for a reason. And Jude is going to make a diagnosis that is quite precise, and there's a lot that we can learn from it. So, let's actually begin by reading our Scripture, shall we? We're going to be reading the first four verses out of Jude. And again, you just get this one little letter, so there's not a whole bunch of chapters and things like that. You just get this one little bit. And let's go ahead and, and check that out. So, Jude, verses 1 through 4, it says, Jude a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, who are beloved, and in God the Father, and kept safe for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. And beloved, while I was eagerly preparing to write to you about the salvation we share, I find it necessary to write and appeal to you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. For certain intruders have stolen in among you, People who long ago were designated for this condemnation as ungodly, who come to pervert the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our Master and Lord Jesus Christ. All right. So, in these first four verses, Jude uses some particular language to describe those who have come in. You see, just as there are two ways, the way of life and the way of death, Jude illuminates that there are two modes of personal character that are afflicting the church in this scenario. One is that of mercy, peace, and love abundance, and this is the proper character that we should have. It's not always easy to have those things, and the world is oftentimes in conflict with us, but that is the character that we are called to. And Jude wishes this for his faithful brothers and sisters in the name of Christ Jesus, that they may have this in abundance. Now, the second thing that we have going on here is a problem of character that is one of hungry licentiousness, the craven life of sensual corruption. Jude, who is one of Christ's twelve apostles, he aspires for the faithful to achieve an abundance of mercy, peace, and Christ-like love, but he knows there is something else which has crept in. You see, 
He knows that you cannot have mercy, peace, and Christ-like love without conflict with the wicked, for sin is always crouching near. Jude understands that victory is found through heavy battle against the forces of chaos, and we must do this while nobly standing in the joyous truth of Christ. So Jude opens his letter in declaration of the contrast between the sheep and the wolves in sheep's clothing. And now that's a very particular thing for us to point out here because a lot of times we think we're exempt from this, that somehow I am unique and special. I would not be tricked by the Trojan horse. I would not be tricked by the wolves in sheep's clothing. I would not have them there in my congregation, in my church, in my circles, which I run around in, you know, my institutions, my universities, my churches, and so forth and so on. We always think that we're exempt from this, but yet a good portion of scripture is giving us wisdom on how to deal with conflict and, you know, evildoers who are there within our own house, who have stolen in among us. Well, Jude, he gives us a stark declaration. There is a big difference between the sheep and the wolves in sheep's clothing. Furthermore, there's actually a cosmic nature to the conflict between the two. You know, he, he, he goes so far to say this is not just some mere accident that this has happened. There's actually a cosmic element to this. This is bigger than just a few people in here. This is something which is eternal in its nature. And that's something which is actually a constant theme across the, the annals of fallen creation. Over the years, over the various eras of time, there has always been this theme that there are those who creep into your house and kind of have this cosmic bent on bringing corruption. Now, we must stand against enemies within, and this scripture is warning us in that matter. So one of the great problems that we have going on in our world is that people sensationalize God. And that's the particular diagnosis that Jude is giving. There have been people who have crept in, and with this perverted licentiousness, they have tried to corrupt the image of God. They have brought in and perverted the very idea of God. This is a big, big problem. There is a true fact that Jude is pointing to, that people come in and they sensationalize God. Now, the sin, it is one that is quite devastating, and we're going to break it down, and hopefully by the end of this message, you'll, you'll be able to follow me exactly what this sin is. Because this is more than a mere footnote in Scripture. This is a mode of thinking which begins in a corrupt understanding of God and then it pours over into all areas of life. Judas correct in his very precise, very specific diagnosis of sensationalism and the method with which it operates. There's a very real and very serious problem that will happen when people shift their God-designed senses and emotions. They'll shift them out of their proper place and then run them up the Tower of Babel as if they can occupy the throne of heaven. This is both an act of idolatry and tyranny, and it produces a vile rot. Despite the fact that this sin takes place in the arena of senses, it quickly will leave there and overrun everything in life. Now Jude, he uses an illustration here that says this sin is pornographic. You know, it's sexually promiscuous. And that language that he uses there, it really is one of sexual promiscuity. And this is a really very precise detail. And I think Jude is quite correct in understanding the methodology of how this sin operates. Because as with all pornography, people, they indulge a heightened moment of intense satisfaction, but then they lose interest in it quite quickly once they've satisfied that flickering itch. There is a reason why pornography makes up such a huge and significant portion of the internet, because it's both highly desirable and also highly disposable. It's a pathway of ever-increasing desire coupled to an ever-diminishing fulfillment. And it leads people to a point where they can feel nothing at all. And therefore, they lose any real ability to use their bodies as God intended. 
And this sad tyranny, it produces small, temporary satisfactions while rejecting enduring happiness. These small, fleeting satisfactions that people feel, it does come at the cost of long-term happiness. And the same mechanism, the same methodology of rot, it frequently happens to people's faith, and it happens really in all aspects of our lives. So Judah is in fact correct that people do turn faith into pornography, and we're going to be talking about that in specific detail. And one of the products you see when people do this with their faith is there becomes an urge, a need for an ever-changing worship style, and we have to change everything up in the church every few years because we're constantly trying to satiate an ever-changing appetite. Rather than starting from the premise that we're here to give God his worth and to move closer to him and we might be better disciplined in our faith, there's this idea that the church serves to satisfy me and my desires and my particular interest in the world. So when you look at the grand scope of things, you have to keep in mind how we view God is largely the epicenter of how we navigate the world. You know, a lot of times people talk about having a theocratic sort of government or something of that nature. But in truth, all systems of government, all ideologies, all methodologies of, of proof and thinking, they all start with some premise of the absolute and what is the governing body of good and evil. And of course, ultimately, that is God. And if you have anything other than the true God who made the heavens and the earth at the top of your moral compass giving you good and evil, you're going to have big problems. You know, the Ten Commandments are actually quite logical in how they operate. And once you sensationalize God, and whenever you sensationalize that which gives you good and evil, you then find that everything else around you starts to get sensationalized as well. People start to question a lot of things that they really shouldn't. When it comes to the question of the presence of the Holy Spirit, people will start to ask the question. They'll say, you know, did I feel the movement of the Holy Spirit? And they'll start to think that the Holy Spirit is only there or not there based on what you felt within its movement. Then they start to question the legitimacy of everything. They'll look at their family and say, you know, my family's love is not based on anything that's actually true out there, but instead it's based on, am I getting the form of attention that I desire in an adequate amount? Then they'll start to look at their neighbor and say, you know, did my neighbor make me feel a positive way or a negative way when we had that interaction? And they'll start to question their motives of their neighbors. And the same thing will start to go in all areas of life. We start to ask questions not of what is true and good, but instead we start to really move in a way that is quite destructive. And that is what happens when God is sensationalized. Everything starts to be sensationalized as well. When it comes to how we think and interact with the world, we start to ask about ideas, questions like this. We start to weigh out ideas and say, is that offensive or inoffensive? Is that politically correct or not? We start to think about the world and say, does that person sound nice or do they sound mean? And instead of ever wondering about what is true or looking for any deeper meaning, truth itself becomes a sensation. And that is a very serious problem. Now, the problem with this is not that sensations are inherently sinful, for God made all things good. But the problem is that sensations can be so fully contained within our person that we start to think that our own feelings and sensations dictate what is and what is not. This is the idolatry of feelings. It is the Tower of Babel made complete, where our emotional and hormonal systems make their way up towards the throne of heaven and decide they can sit there and decide what is and is not good. Now, this really is a huge problem in our modern age. 
information, news, all of our interactions with one another, they are almost entirely designed to be sensational. We like clickbait news. We're a sensational headline. It'll catch our eye and we snatch up the story. We read it. We look at the scandal. We gawk at it. We get angry at it. We want to do whatever we want to do with it. But then we throw it away and forget about it a few moments later. You know, this is one of the big problems with a lot of the big tech censorship that we see going on in our world. It's not just that they want to censor certain ideas and try to have a political bent that comes out there. One of the even bigger problems of this is they want to censor our ability to think and interact as God designed us to. There's this idea that all of the information, it can be tailored in its most sensational way. So that even something that is positive, like looking at pictures of your family or pictures of your dog, whatever it may be, it may be bent towards this sensationalism where everything's got to be really cute and catch your eye. And instead of looking at something which has deeper meaning, everything is just bent towards the sensational. And that is an even more destructive form of warfare than some of the things we've seen in the past because it's psychological it gets us deep down in our core and whenever we indulge this sensual idolatry we never ask the question if something actually is true and if it is true then we must do something about it instead we ask about biases and angles we ask if something is traditional or modern if it's what the experts say then we wonder how will it make us look is it what is popular, or does it help us advance a cause? You know, especially in the age of the coronavirus, when there's a lot of churches and things wondering how to deal with this, there have been a lot of people who say, you know, if we open up and someone gets sick, we might get sued, or if somebody comes over here and finds our church meeting and people are going around without masks on, or they're less than six feet away, we might get on the news and be seen as some sort of bad people who don't love one another. And instead of us caring about what is good and true and noble, and actually having faithful services to Christ Jesus, we instead are actually operating with complete concern and surrender and fear of what people might say about us. And that is so destructive because it shows you where your motivations really are and they're not in their proper place. We, we do this so often in the world around us and it infects the church. You know, within the church, we, we pleasure ourselves with conversations on social justice without the slightest concern for what is actually true. Not even the slightest idea of what is actually true, but instead we have select ideas only of what is felt. Anything is asked and permitted but the question of truth and the implementations of standards that move towards truth, which of course means we're moving towards God. The idolatry of sensation, it creates a world where no one is held accountable for anything. And instead, we forget that truth and action actually matter. Now, of course, we're not saved by our actions, but when we look upon the truths of heaven, we are so stirred that we must act. The idolatry of sensation is so wretched because it moves the question of truth into the arena of chaos, an arena where there is no standard other than a person's desire for emotional satisfaction. Moreover, it causes us to forget that our thoughts of whether or not how we felt regarding the Holy Spirit's presence may have less to do with the Holy Presence itself and more to do with the person that cut us off on the highway, the breakfast that got a little too burnt, or even the dreams we had last night whose emotions lingered on long after we forgot the exact story in the dream. The tyranny of sensationalism is that it lacks any standard other than the self, and it only values what the self feels in a given moment. It produces a world where none can think clearly. But this is not how God designed us to live. Truth is larger than any of us, and we do well to appreciate that fact. 
Our senses are creations of God that we might have joy while we navigate life with Him. Jude's argument is not that the senses are bad, but he knows that senses, which are dislocated and out of place, can corrupt the true joys of God's design. Pornography gives an ever-diminishing small satisfaction in replacement of the large satisfaction of marriage. And all sensational tyrannies, they do this. All sensational tyrannies do this. It replaces the true happiness with nothingness. The joy unspeakable and full of glory is exchanged for a joy that deserves no words and is full of nothing. And this is how this terrible, sensational idolatry works. And there really is a specific psychology and a specific behavior that is associated with this. And you can clearly see it in pornography, but it applies to all sorts of sensational thinking. What happens is that one has a strong desire for an intense momentary satisfaction that they will become immediately bored with after they have reached the emotional climax. Then, after hitting that climax, they discard the material quickly for it serves no further purpose. Later, when the lustful itch returns, they will seek out licentious material once again, but this time they have to look for some new variation. For the previous lost its novelty and it can never quite give the same feeling. And this happens with our faith. These are not my words, but scriptures. We need a new song, we need a new style of education, a new interpretation, a new critical theory. We need new names, new words, new programs, new positions, and so forth and so on. The ever changing new. But the question of what is true never emerges. When this infection, it hits the church and it hits it hard, it creates a rot in the heart of believers who are always looking for how God might satisfy their whims without ever even the slightest consideration of how they might serve Him. It replaces true joy with a disposable garbage Things to be forgotten in a moment because they never really brought fulfillment in the first place. Now this does indicate that we need to, to do something about this. We need to be on the correct course because this is a real problem. It's in our scriptures for a reason. But it doesn't indicate that music and all other emotional stirring forces are always sinful. For they are creations of God. All creations of God can draw us towards Him, whether it be the logic of mathematical algorithms or the majesties displayed in both mountains and musical harmony. What we must do is avoid error. And in order to do that, one of the best and simplest things we can do is simply ask, why are we doing things? Examine our motivations. Why are we doing things? Do we sing out a motivation to God, even if doing so fails to give us a vivid sensation? Or do we sing to satisfy the self? And that means we might conjure a vivid sensation. Now, these are serious issues, but this message is not chiefly a critique on worship styles. You see, the real truth is this does not stop at one point. It is sin. It's a rot. It corrupts. It goes everywhere. It wants to overrun everything in life. Our entire society has been so sensationalized that we have now reached a point where there is almost no meaning at all in the public sphere, and meaning is verboten. It is forbidden in the public sphere. When we go to Proverbs 18, we are reminded that the one who states a case first seems right. That is, until the other comes and cross-examines. Truth, and even the presence of God, it is not determined by opinion or awareness. Often we think one thing is the case only to realize that we were wrong. 
And one of the beautiful things about what Proverbs is telling us, it's not trying to tell us that truth is contained in one person and then another comes and changes that truth. But what it's telling you is that truth is bigger than all people. And it's so easy to to pierce and puncture that lie that truth is contained in a person that all you need to do is have a second person come along and tell you a different side of a story. You'll immediately find out that truth is not limited to what our opinions or feelings on the matter are, but truth is larger than any of us. You can poke a hole in that lie so easily just by hearing a second opinion. And when we consider how we as the church should operate, Christ tells us people will know we are His by how we love one another with Christ-like love, not by how we feel about the matter. The scriptures also tell us that there will be dark valleys, moments when we feel as if we are cut off from the light. And that means there may not be a lot of warm sensations there with us. And it is in these moments when we feel as if God's hand is withdrawn. But God looks upon His creatures and commands endurance, that we carry on through the perceived loneliness of the valley of the shadow of death, and at minimum, we draw interest on a single talent while we await the return of the Master. You know, that is the, the floor, that is the bare minimum which is permitted in the parable of the talents. The one who is given the least amount of talents must at least draw interest on it. Him burying it in the ground was not acceptable. The least we can do is produce some small fruit out of motivated service to him, even as we think that he is distant. So God did create the sensations, not hell. And that's an important thing to keep in mind as we, we go through this. Since power is not to invent new desires, but to have us take the natural desires and pleasures and indulge them in ways, times, and degrees that are farthest removed from what gives real satisfaction. And C.S. Lewis, he writes a lot about this. And when you look to his text, The Screwtape Letters, which are a series of letters from demons in hell writing to one another about how they might better tempt people, Uncle Screwtape, he reminded his nephew Wormwood how joyous it was for the father below to see someone trade their soul to hell for absolutely nothing in return. And not only does the devil consider it a certain way for hell to acquire you, but the devil also considers it good style. The devil finds it quite stylish when you give him your soul for nothing in return, and that's what the idolatry of sensation does. And the senses, they must be in their proper place, just as God designed them. And that's where they'll give us the most satisfaction. And so now that we have distinctly identified this sensual idolatry, let us consider the hope of God's truth. You know, there really is evangelism in standing against this tyranny. People are liberated when they live and walk in truth, and the senses they bring far more joy in their natural forms than when they are used as slaves to the sensual idols of small satisfaction. And you know, one of the small details that Jude has in there is that notion that you must contend and fight for the faith. You know, Jude's aspiration towards mercy, peace, and love, it doesn't come without a fight. Don't be fooled into thinking that it is. Salvation in Christ did not come without a fight. Tyrannical idols, they're always around us. They always have been since the fall. And we do well to stand firmly against them. The pathway to mercy, peace, and love is found through combat against sensual idols. Truth and beauty, they belong to God. And if we are going to enjoy them, then we must fight for them. Do not think that liberty and mercy can come without a conflict. There's always going to be someone who wants to tear down and hate that which is good, true, and beautiful. And as we have found detailed here in the scripture, also what is natural. 
Therefore, let us stand firm with Christ as conquerors against the world. So let's close by saying the Lord's Prayer and wrap up this first sermon on the book of Jude. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, power, and glory forever. Amen. So thank you for joining me. Again, I'm Pastor J. Dillon Proctor. And on that note, God love you, and have a blessed day.